You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. Now, if you haven't heard yet, uh, this is me telling you, you need to take a look at the new boots from Lacrosse, and they fall under the Navigator series. Now, what they've done is they've taken the best parts of a rubber boot and the best parts of your traditional hiking and hunting boot, and they've mashed them together to come up with this new line of boots from lacrosse and that is the navigator series now they have the women's windrows they have the men's windrows and then they have the atlas the atlas series within that as well so go to lacrossefootwear.com and check out this new line of boots that they have i've been using mine for a couple weeks now and i am very impressed with the the fit and the feel and i can't wait to get them in the woods this hunting season and uh, give them a trial run so lacrossefootwear.com check them out All right, everybody, welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast brought to you by Vortex Optics. Today is a very interesting podcast. I get the opportunity to speak with Hank Forrester. He works for the QDMA, and he has been doing a lot of work with hunter recruitment, hunter retention, and reactivation, right, R3 movement, as well as the field-to-fork uh program as well and we get into a little bit of all of that on today's podcast we talk about um you know getting non-hunters interested in going out and getting meat themselves right Uh, and he, he shares a real cool story of a guy who was vegan and he said that if i'm gonna eat meat i want to have the responsibility of going out and killing it myself and now this guy is a hunter right a full-blown hunter who buys a license every year and he goes and takes venison you know a a deer from the land so that's a a really good uh, story we also talk about statistics in the decline of hunters uh, throughout the nation and um, what happens when hunters hit this 70 year 70 years old right this this almost stopping point for them. So we get into some really, a really good conversation. He drops a lot of knowledge bombs on us today. And uh, I think that in you know this time of year, everybody wants to know about strategy. Everybody wants to know about how I can go out and kill a big buck or whatever. And you know, in the grand scheme of things, that's all secondary, right? It's podcasts like this, episodes like this, that are truly important for the longevity of you know being able to hunt. So. 
I am going to get back to the, uh, you know, to the, the tactics, the strategy, uh, you know, in, in some of these next episodes. But uh, right now I felt it's my responsibility to share this, uh, this content with you. And hopefully you guys uh, take a moment and listen to it. And, uh, you know, and just, you know, something different to think about uh, this time of year. But before we get into this uh, podcast, I just want to say that uh, uh, we got to do a commercial and that commercial is Ozonics, right? So Ozonics is a, a product that you put in the tree. It emits O3 and what O3 does is it it, it, it messes with your scent molecules uh, downwind and it makes a deer think that you're not there or you're further away or uh, you don't smell as bad as what you really do, right? So it it's one of those products that honestly, I feel that, you know, I can sit here and tell you all about it. If you have a buddy who has one, ask if you can borrow it um, because it is a, in my opinion, it is a game changer. Not only from in the field applications, right? You hang it above your head, you point it downwind, and it protects your six basically. Any, any, uh, any deer coming downwind. I had a, a really nice three-year-old 130 class walk right through my uh, my scent stream what this last weekend and was not bothered at all right and he was at 20 no he was at 19 yards he was at 19 yards because i ranged him hit that his nose went up in the air because he smelled something but it wasn't a threat so he kept walking Uh, i had a a couple does do the same thing earlier in the season and uh, that application but also off the field right where you're you're putting your clothes in the dry wash bag and uh, i'm telling you right now that uh it is it's one of those things where uh, i'm washing my clothes less i'm spending less time preparing for the hunt because all i do is i put my uh my clothes in the dry wash bag hit the the dry wash cycle button it cleanses my clothes and now i'm ready and I can do that while I'm eating lunch or I'm, you know, taking a, a mid-afternoon nap or whatever. And then I, I don't have to wait for it to dry. I just put my clothes back on and hit the wood. So it's a time saver. It makes me a more efficient hunter. Um, so I'm a huge fan, huge fan of, of the technology that these guys and I, I hear they're even coming out with some crazier stuff. That's all I know. I don't have any other info. Uh later this year as well i'm not sure if it's going to be out in 2019 maybe 2020 i'm not sure anyway um check out ozonics go to their website and if you do decide to purchase uh uh, one of their units you can get a free dry wash bag with your purchase of of a unit by entering in nfc19 nfc19 so uh, go check out ozonics other than that let's get into today's I guess hunter retention, hunter recruitment, reactivation, right? Uh, with Hank Forrester from the QDMA. All right, on the phone with me right now from the QDMA, Mr. Hank Forrester. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. So far this year, have you had time to get out in the timber and do a little hunting? I've done a little hunting, um, just kind of getting through a really busy season with field to forks and and mentored hunting programs that kind of took my September and October. But fortunately, I was able to sit uh, with two first-time adult hunters as they took their first deer uh, over the last few weeks. So it's been uh, 
fun and rewarding, and I'm looking forward to uh, getting a little more time for myself in the near future. That's awesome. And uh, that's today's topic uh, today. We're going to be talking about hunter retention. We're going to be talking about uh, the decline in hunting numbers and just some data that goes uh, to support, you know, all these things. But real quick, talk about Field the Fork and, uh, you know, how that, uh, how that program has done since its inception. All right. Um, you know, Field the Fork was started as a workshop in Kentucky by name and logo and everything. Um, in 2016, um, I sat on a um, selection panel and a steering committee to hire the Georgia R3 coordinator, Charles Evans, who uh, in turn, we kind of started Field the Fork as we know it. Uh, in 2016 in Athens, Georgia, setting up a booth at the farmer's market and recruiting uh, first-time adult hunters, food-focused hunters, um, with the question of, hey, would you like to try some venison and moving forward from there? But um, we we kind of piloted it for a couple years, um, changing the way that we uh, recruited mentors for the program and and really just worked on the sustainability and and. and the ease of replication for the program. Um, and then, so uh, in the last couple of years, we've expanded before going into this hunting season, we we have filled the forks in 13 states. Um, about 25 programs will be happening this fall. Um, you know, and, and they keep on popping up um, thanks to uh, Wired to Hunt and Meat Eater. Uh, we, you know, we've been getting um, an unbelievable flood of people interested in participating or hosting or or lear- learning more about Build the Fork. And so I can only see exponential growth from here. But um, really, we just wanted to do a food-focused adult learn-to-hunt program uh, that really, truly focused on creating hunters as its outcome. And we've... Uh, We've been very successful. 80% of our adult participants have continued hunting after the program. Gotcha. So what, what's the focus on that, on that field to fork program? Cause I feel it's going to, that this topic is going to leak into what we ultimately want to talk about today. Do you approach with, Hey, do you want to learn how to hunt or do you approach with, Hey, why don't you try some fresh meat and I'll teach you how to go and get it yourself. Yeah, it's a, uh, you know, we, we set up at the farmer's market. Um, we, one of the reasons why we reached out to Kentucky uh, was for use of name and logo because we, we were kind of doing this on a whim and, and we wanted to look legit. But, um, you know, we don't have a lot of stuff that would make it apparent that we're there hunting. I mean, of course, there's logos of deer and there's a silhouette of a guy with a gun on the flyer, but the flyer looks like a fork and knife and plate. And uh, it says, you know, it, you know, if you want the most local, sustainable meat, sometimes you have to go find it yourself or go get it yourself. And uh, and so we, we offer a sample of venison. Hey, would you like to try some venison? We usually have some back straps, some, some sausage, and some jerky. If they take us up on that, I'll just kind of fill them out. Do you eat a lot of venison? Do you know people hunt? Do you hunt? Obviously, just trying to figure out if they're our ideal candidate. And then, uh, you know, if there's somebody who doesn't have immediate family who hunts, didn't grow up in a hunting culture that would like to learn. Uh, you know, we say, Hey, we're actually here to recruit a dozen or 15, um, adults and run them through a organized, um, learn to hunt program. It's two afternoons 
of three hours in the afternoon. We do an organized Saturday, Sunday morning deer hunt just to get it on everybody's calendar and all that kind of good stuff. We pair them with local mentors. Most of our mentors are coming from a local QDMA branch uh, for the Athens pilot. And we ask them to share their stands and, and their knowledge with these uh, new hunters and facilitate follow-up hunts. And that's really where the, the success of the program is, is, is allowing these people to continue a trial phase to get comfortable, build the confidence it takes. Um, I believe that creating a hunter, we, we all know, and we can expand on this uh, later, but um, part of the R3 movement and kind of how we recruit, retain, and reactivate hunters. You know, when we're, when a hunter is going through their trial phase or, or we, um, we use a model called the outdoor recreation adoption model that is, I think, kind of knocked off a marketing plan of how you market to someone. But we've decided that social support is really key to getting a hunter from the beginning and trial into actually becoming a hunter and and the goal of creating a hunter is that they you know how how do you know when you create a hunter obviously we want a licensed buyer um but they need to self-identify as a hunter and you know and and do exactly that say i can do this this is what i do i'm i hunt um and that's confidence in my opinion i think really the most important confidence level to build into a new hunter is that they can take care of an animal uh, the studies show that if they don't feel comfortable that they can take care of an animal after the shot, they won't go hunting again. Um, and that can be as easy as providing a, you know, a mentor, a phone number, somebody who can show up and help them through the first couple times or, or someone to be with them in the stand and, and in the field. And of course, when we start them, you know, it is a mentor hunt. They paired up, they share the stand together. But the other confidence level um, has got to be, you know, that self-identification. That's a confidence level. Right. And um, and that social support of the group. And that's really the what we're trying to do with that Athens program. And, and most of the replications we do is create community-based programs where that social support is local. And then we do culinary socials to, you know, after a couple of weeks of them hunting on their own. And we... You know, we do about quarterly dinners here in Athens. Um, but, you know, as we've replicated this program, we've proven different models. We've hosted um, programs for industry. We've hosted your destination models. Just got back from one where we hosted people from Thursday to Sunday, condensing all of this into four days. And, and you know, we've done all kinds of different stuff with different partners around the country. Gotcha. So you said there's... Uh, out of this program uh, and the people that you've taken out with you, there has been an 80% um, success rate as far as retention and them and then continuing on to be hunters. Is that correct? Sure. Okay. Yes. So the 20% is what I, I'm kind of interested in. They, is that just, they don't have time. What's their, what's their rebuttal after you take them out and they decide not to continue? You know, I don't know if that is going to be a long-term trend of that 20% that they want or they just didn't get back to it that year. Um, you know, in our beginning stages, we do we do pre-selection surveys. You know, the, I think one of the reasons why we have such a high, uh, you know, rate of continuing to hunt is because they're self-selecting. These are people that 
we're meeting now with a lot of the press we're getting, we're getting a lot of people coming to us, but it's the, I've been wanting to do this for five years or 10 years or, um, you know, it, it's not this new idea. It's just that there's not a lot of resources or opportunity, especially for adults who want to learn to hunt. Um, and so, you know, we're finding people who are, who are really wanting to try this that are probably um, well aligned with the other things they do. They're outdoor recreationalists. They, um, you know, you, you hear a lot of, um, you know, they want to, they want sustainable food, but they also want to be um, self-reliant. Um, you know, they, you get all kinds of comments like that, obviously um, a better connection with their food and also a better connection with nature. But, um, you know, as as we see more and, and the different people are coming to us, it's obvious that that this is something that they're going to be set to do. In the early stages, um, you know, we the first time we ever set up at the Athens Farmers Market, we had a waiting list in three hours. And, um, you know, some people on our pre-selection survey didn't get, it didn't identify that one of them showed up to class the first day and his father uh, hunted when he was a kid, but he never got up to go hunting with him. Well, guess who didn't show up for the organized hunt? Um, you know, so we, we it's that kind of 80-20 rule in life, I feel. Yeah. I don't know if we're ever, you know, we, like last year we had an amazing group, 86% of them continue. Um, you know, there might be those who just, it just wasn't for them. But all in all, because we're able to select the proper candidate, you know, w- through these selection surveys. Um, you know, we've even run the data now because we're tracking license numbers. So we're, 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 we're really, really tracking what we're doing and making sure we're selecting the right candidate. So, um, you know, by looking at that, we know that some of our current participants had a hunting license last year. And that's because a lot of these people are trying to get started on their own and it, they're just not finding success, but they, they took Hunter out a year ago. They bought a license last year thinking they were going to go hunting. I, 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 we had a couple guys this week that had, you know, gone hunting on public land once and never seen a deer. So that's not, that's not a reason not to accept them, but I don't want to accept people who have immediate family members who hunt. They just really are taking advantage of their res- local resources because we want to give those who otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity um, the chance because we're really trying to grow, you know, the number of hunters in this country, but also to diversify. Right. And so when we can get these hunters from diverse backgrounds who didn't grow up in hunting cultures, uh, we're doing a much better job of, you know, our end goal, as well as they're our best advocates. And and they go and share their story, share their venison um, you know, with their peer group and recruit their own. And, and we have data to prove that. I mean, we've had, uh, you know, participants who mentored five new hunters the same year they went through the program. I've gotten three emails this week from friends of a young lady who went through our field to fork last weekend because her friends kind of wanted her to go through it and let and report back if it was a, a good program. But now, um, she's, you know, she's passed along her amazing experience and they're saying, is there anything like this I can sign up for? Right. So, um, so they're great advocates for us as well. 
Gotcha. So I heard I heard uh, somewhere or I read a stat somewhere, and I think I think it was it takes three years worth of mentoring to I, I guess get a hunter to start and then go out by themselves. Is that is that accurate data? I don't believe so. No, I've heard so. Okay. I've heard that off the cuff before. Um, there there may be some data to um, to suggest that might be true. Uh, it would not be true in uh, the case of Phil DeFork as we're running it. Um, okay. We we really are trying to give the necessary information and knowledge needed to go afield. You know, we're trying to pair them with local hunters who are sharing their scan stands and their um, access is thought of as a huge issue for new hunters. And if you don't have that community support or whatever, I can absolutely see that. I just, I'm, I'm like, I'm maybe your outlier. Um, I don't worry about access much because I don't think there's a lot we can do to affect access, especially, you know, in the deer hunting world, most states are 90% private land. So deer hunting is a private land sport or pursuit sport has some bad connotations when you when you poll people um but it deer hunting is 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 vastly a private land opportunity in the southeast and stuff like that and the quickest way we can affect access is by getting more deer hunters to invite others uh you know and so i always say access is an invite we create access for these build the fork hunters by finding mentors who are willing to share their property and share their stands. Um, and I think that's how we affect access in the deer hunting realm. So are so, those, I mean, we want to, go ahead. Are, are those mentors then uh, saying, Hey, I'm only interested in bringing new hunters on or because at some point there becomes a limit, you know, like let's say I had a, uh, I owned a piece of property and I said, yes, I would love to participate in this program and you can bring your new hunters on. But then it, at some point it becomes the new hunter's responsibility to go gain access to their own property. Correct? Yes. Yes. No, we, um, the intention of Phil DeFork is to give them one season, gotcha. you know, and, and, and let, you know, we, we do, um, rabbit hunts, you know, after deer seasons out, we've done rabbit hunts. We've, you know, local retired, professor is a big rabbit hunter with beagles so we offered a rabbit hunt we've done squirrel hunts we've taken field of pork participants turkey hunting so we're you know we're giving them a year per se and um we still offer access to some of them if they mentor new hunters for us but it, it's not that every new hunter doesn't ha already have access uh we've we've taken plenty of people through the program uh, one guy had 50 acres, one had 25. Uh, we just profiled a field of fork hunter from this year, uh, in, in quality white tells the, the, um, you know, I think this one is just starting to mail right now. So no one's seen it, but we ask all these participants to get up name, age, occupation, uh, how they found out about field of fork. If it's not the Athens farmers market one and, and why they want to learn to hunt deer. And it's really an important part of kind of the group group building process. But uh, this guy's a, a he's born in Germany. He's a professor of zoological veterinarian, whatever it would be. He's he's a veterinarian who specializes in in large animals, and he um, he's a professor at UGA. 
And his comment was, I own 20 acres and a big green egg. Um, you know, quote unquote, that, that was his reason to hunt. So, um, you know, some of them have family members in hunt and that's how we've taken a lot of these first time participants and turned them into mentors in year two, sharing their property and their stand. Gotcha. Um, so not everybody needs access. Some are fortunate enough to have it, but we try to give them the resources and, and again, the confidence. It's really, it is daunting to go knock on doors. We're finding, uh, you know, I, I get a lot of feedback from participants from years past. Like, I know what I need to do. You know, it's still just, it's daunting to go knock on somebody's door and ask permission to hunt on their back five or 40 acres or whatever. You know? Right. But, um, but no, the intention is to give them, uh, you know, the resources and confidence. We, we, um, you know, we give them a subscription to Onyx Maps. The first year we started Athens Field to Fork, we called around on the text ID maps and got permissions to properties to hunt for the program, uh, really with the intention of proving to all the participants, hey, this is what we did and you can do it too. And, and it worked for us. Um, and so, so people are getting out. There's a lot of them exploring local public land. We do have a large expanse of public land just south of us uh, in this area, but, but each one's different. Gotcha. Gotcha. So when you guys are uh, in this program, uh, you guys are talking about, you know, you know, you, and you're working with the QDMA is field to fork a QDMA program or is, is QDMA working with field to fork? So, um, QD, Field to Fork was started as a cooperative program in Georgia gotcha. between QDMA and the Georgia R3 Initiative, which is made up of the Georgia Wildlife Federation, NWTF, um, the Georgia DNR, and uh, in these days, Safari Club International. Gotcha. So we started as a cooperative effort and continue to replicate it um within georgia as a cooperative effort okay and have some really exciting stuff on the horizon there um we took it upon you know the, the original pilot was piloted right here at my headquarters um you know we used our property and the classroom and stuff um and then we set out to replicate field the forks as we had done it at, at, as qdma but as we replicate it you know we're partnering with any perspective group we're also you know we have a standardized curriculum we have sample agendas we have you know suggested guidelines other resources we just finished uh you know a, a learn to deer hunt online module with huntered.com uh you know we have an ebook that we've done with them years ago uh, we just finished a series of deer hunting 101 videos all with the intention of providing the resources to host a field before program and additional resources for mentors and participants to use at home or, you know, I call it plug and play. And we're also about to release um, a mentored guide, which is really a guide to mentoring with a field of fork focus. And we did that in conjunction with the Archery Trade Association, uh, the National Shooting Sports Foundation and QDMA. So, um, it, it's all just kind of different partnerships around the country. And as they've, they've replicated, we've, we've got a long list of diverse partners. Gotcha. Um, and even, and even consulting in areas, 
Uh, you know, traditionally QDMA has not been in California, you know, really white-tailed deer in about 34 states. We consulted Alaska held a field to fork, which was really cool, great photography, but they did uh, snowshoe hares. And, of course, California is really ramping up. There are three programs. When the Wall Street Journal article hit and some of the later press for Field to Fork, I get more emails out of Sacramento, California, than any place in the country. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I It's funny you say that because I was in Napa Valley with my wife and Sonoma Valley, uh, what, two years ago now. And there was, I, I saw blacktail deer all over the place and they were in the, they were in the vineyards. They were, uh, you know, on the hillsides out in the country. And, uh, so that, that's interesting because I think people probably see them and then become interested about it once they hear, you know, once they hear the news about th- that, the program. Yeah, I believe Andrew McKean went on a vineyard hunt a year or two ago and highlighted it for Outdoor Life or something like that. But sign me up if any vineyard would like to take care of uh, (laughs) an overabundant deer population and some wine pairing. Uh, You know, um, that's another thing about Field to Fork. It's an adult program. We serve venison meals at all trainings and, uh, you know, for the hunts. We serve adult beverages, um, you know, so, um, you know, I, I, we, we just did a field to fork for Traeger employees. And I can tell you that hosting a field to fork for professional chefs was by far the tastiest field to fork I've ever attended. <laughs> I, um, bet. I bet. Yeah. So, uh, when, when you guys are in these classes and talking about, um, you know, you're talking to the people about what to shoot. Um, are you telling them you should shoot the first deer that walks by? Are you telling them to shoot any legal deer or are you kind of leaking in the QDMA standards into that saying, Hey, you know, or educating them on mature animals. So, um, I would, I would have to argue that there, you know, I, I don't know what QDMA standards are, but the, that may be misconstrued. Um, no, I, you know, I, I don't believe, you know, I, I believe a first time hunter should be able to shoot anything that makes them happy. Now, you know, we just came from a field to fork on a, on a very beautiful large property in South Georgia that's intensively managed. And, you know, that landowner really wanted us to target does for them and, and, you know, try not to shoot. Uh, smaller deer or smaller bucks, but that was really their management objectives as a program, you know, as their deer management program for this specific property that invited us to host this amazing program on. So, you know, I can't, you know, that that's well within their right. And, and I'm happy that they allowed us to do this. I mean, uh, we had eight first time hunters and we, we got 10 deer and, um, you know, we, we could, we couldn't do that in some other places. Uh, for the Athens program, um, you know, we we think that, it, you know, it, it's different with each hunter, but it is their decision. And, um, you know, I sat with a first-time hunter this year, and I said, hey, uh, you know, we were, we were sitting out here. It was a follow-up hunt. Um, Tom needed some he, – he wanted me to sit with him after the organized program, which I was happy to do had some other field to fork hunters on the property that were kind of ready to, to try it in the stand on their own. But, um, 
we had a nice group of, you know, does and a couple of fawns, you know, craw- you know, come in front of us, but they stayed at 50 and 60 yards, which uh, we hung with crossbows, but, and, and I know that there's current companies out there marketing hundred yard crossbows. Uh, we limit our shots to under 40, uh, you know, really looking for that under 30 shot. And for these first time hunters, um, I don't believe any crossbow is a good idea past 40 or 50, no matter what it is. But um, they just stayed slightly out of range, a couple decent bucks followed this group of does up the same drainage, you know, and, you know, Tom was good. I said, Tom, they're just a little out of range. You know, it, it's not a good shot. Um, and then we heard a little rustling behind us and a fawn popped out 10 yards dead broadside right in front of us. I said, Tom, you know, if, if, if you'd like to, you know, put that deer in that freezer, you know, that, that's totally up to you. Um, and his, his initial reaction was no, I, I'm, I'm not gonna, you know, shoot that uh, fawn. Um, I've had other hunters that, you know, we've, we've, you know, put a few fawns in the freezer. Um, it, they're delicious. Um, you know, it made them happy, uh, you know, um, so that's totally up to them. Um, we don't have any restrictions on bucks. I mean, um, you know, we're trying to get those first deer on the ground. We're trying to get them that experience of recovery, of gutting, skinning, cleaning, um, and, and taking that venison home. And so we're not selective at all. Gotcha. You know, um, it's it's really about, you know, getting that experience and getting that venison. These are food-focused hunters. Um, a couple years ago, I guided a guy named Evan. He's a local chiropractor. It was on a follow-up hunt. I, I usually sit back and cook dinner during the organized hunt, but his wife, uh, is a vegan and um, he decided that if he was going to eat meat he needed to know what it was like to take an animal's life at least once in his life and um, who and I who am I to judge his motivation you know to be like right. the once in the life kind of threw me off but who am I to judge we sat in this stand one morning had a beautiful two and a half year old eight point you know crossed the path and he didn't see it and he thought I was joking with him when I was like did you see that deer and luckily I have no clue why, but as it came out of this thicket, it did a U-turn and came to 25 yards and stood broadside for him. He made a great shot, uh, watched it crash in view. Um, and, and we cleaned that deer and I, you know, offered him the rack and he had, he had no interest in taking home uh, this beautiful little eight point rack. He, and one of the other hunters, a, um, I believe he was an, an, you know, molecular biologist, PhD candidate at UGA. He took the antlers home. Um, but, but the interesting story on it, uh, Evan is I saw him out the other day and I, and I continue, you know, we have this community, these 50 people who have gone through the program in Athens that continue to come to our dinners. And and I saw him just the other day, but, uh, you know, a few months after we harvested that deer, I asked him if he was eating it. And he was like, yeah, I've had all my buddies over watching football and cooking X, Y, and Z. And he said, I'm ready to go again. I'm out of venison, <laughs> you know? And so he, awesome. he is hunting. Uh, he, he's, he's hunted with me this year. He's hunting on his own. Um, but it, the, the one time, uh, I did, did not hold. Um, he, he, he is a hunter today, has a license this year. That's cool. Um, and you know, we're, we're tracking these license purchases. We have their user ID numbers. 
we so we can see if they ever purchase license for the rest of their life. And so um, we will have that data. We don't have long-term data yet, but I can tell you the data is uh, is looking good. That most of our hunters are buying license the next year. I hosted a field of fork in Texas last year, a destination one, and 100% of the participants have continued hunting and have hunting privileges this year. That's awesome. Man, that's cool. Mm-hmm. All right, so that's the field to fork program. Now I want to kind of get into the, uh, the, the hunter recruitment side of things and just refresh us. Um, I think uh, when was the last big survey done uh, as far as, you know, the hunter decline numbers and, and the data that the, the data that we're seeing that's uh, trending downward? Okay, so um, sorry, I'm getting beat. Um, the last survey uh, was 2016. So um, we're talking about the National uh, Survey of Fishing, Hunting, and Wildlife Associated Recreation. Okay. Let me just make sure. I'm, I'm looking at them on my computer, but yeah, they titled it the same in 2016. I was looking at the 2011 one. So they do it every five years put out by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, um, and it is our best report on uh, the number of licensed buyers, um, you know, the economic impact, uh, you know, motivations of hunters, that kind of stuff. But in 2016, um, we, we, we have the report, and um, the, the gloomy bad news, for the future of hunting and the 2016 report would have to be that 11 and a half million people 16 years of old of age or older uh had a hunting license so that's okay. that's four and a half percent of the u.s population gotcha is a licensed hunter okay and that was that was a decline from the last time that they did yes. the, so in- 2011 was the previous survey and uh that number was 13.7 million so we saw a decline into of 2.2 million hunters in five years between 2011 and 2016. gotcha okay so uh there's this big decline now you know as we're sitting here uh we can always we can talk about uh speculation we can talk about uh, you know what the next um, you know, the next in 2021, they'll do another one of these then, correct? Yes. Okay. 20, 2021. Um, let's talk about the data. And this is, this is what interests me is at 70 years of age, it seem it sounds like there is a drastic drop off from people buying hunting licenses and continuing to, um, uh, and continuing to hunt. So, with that said, we have this data pool of people in age group that's reaching the end of their quote-unquote hunting career. Uh, can you, can you uh, elaborate on that and talk about what the future holds for that and, and what we could see uh, when, when that age group hits 70 years old? Sure, sure. So um, if you want to get a visual representative of this, the Council to Advance Hunting and the Shooting Sports um, they have a the Future of Hunting and Fishing project on their website done in conjunction with Dr. Lauren Chase, 
but that actually tracks hunting license in this country over the years based on the percentage of the population that has a license. And there's a few things that we that's obvious from looking at this chart or this animation. Um, and, you know, you don't have to have a hunting license until you're 16 in most states. And so that's why we, we kind of do the 16 and on. But you're correct. The So just to start off, you know, you can look at the different kind of bubbles or peaks and troughs on this chart of the percentage of population that that own a hunting license or a hunting privilege by age. And the first thing you notice is that the baby boomer generation is by far the largest cohort of hunters ever in this country, meaning that they were recruited as hunters as a large, you know, more of them hunt as a percentage of their generation or their, their total population than other generations. The, the later generations, uh, the Gen X's and Y's and millennials or whatever have not been recruited in that. So, so say 2% of, uh, you know, my millennial generation hunts three and a half or 4% of the baby boomers hunt. And we know based on the same analysis of data that there is a hard stop on hunting around 70 years old and you can see it, but just, it's almost, it's almost a hard stop. And I hope that both of us and, and everybody listening to this bucks that trend but I've seen it happen within some of the people that I knew who got were hunters into the older age. I mean, obviously, life expectancy in this country is older than 70, but you start to lose some of your hunting buddies, and it's not as much fun to go. You know, you've got other responsibilities like, uh, you know, a, a wife or husband or or something that, you know, needs more of your time, uh, You your health deteriorates to where it's just not enjoyable or something that you can really do anymore. There's all these factors in play to why there is a hard stop at 70. And so we're now experiencing that baby boomer generation, that largest cohort of licensed hunters are starting to hit 70 years of age. And so we're seeing this huge decline in the number of licensed hunters because of that, because the largest group is hitting that cliff. What, and, is, um, what is that and, you know, age range right there? That we're, The that, age range of the, baby the, boomers? Yeah. Do you happen to have that right now? Gosh, I don't know. I can Google it really quick. If I, if um, I was to guess that we're, we're expecting a huge drop-off at 70, and we're just now starting to hit it, and I think that I heard over the next 12 years is the baby boomer generation is that accurate so if we take 70 minus 12 we're uh we're looking at uh 60 uh let's see 58 from 58 to 70 somewhere around there so um so the baby boomer definition is 1946 to 64 meaning that those born in 1946 would now be 73 years old so we're so for the last few years that baby boomer cohort has been hitting that 70 year mark obviously there's still a lot more to come um since you know that's 18 years 
in that generation. But you see where they're starting to hit that mark started uh, three to four years ago and will continue. Um, you know, one thing we cannot stop is time. Right. And uh, it'll it'll continue. But we are starting to experience um, that fall off. And, and right now, it, you know, obviously we have that data. It's It's hard to prove, you know, to most of us that that's what we're experiencing. Um, you know, we spoke earlier about a little bubble in, in around 20, 2008, uh, you know, where we, we celebrated some increases in hunting participation. And I will tell you that in 2006, we reported that there were 12.5 million hunters. And then in 2011, we reported that there were 13.7. There have been some analysis of that data um and and we think we kind of flew a false flag of celebration you can affect these hunter numbers by changing the way regulations are built um so the way they change some of the ways that you know the licensing requirements for the state of new york and one other state and so all of a sudden we thought we had seen an increase of hunters but we probably hadn't okay and the other thing that these numbers don't account for is the number of hunters as a, you know, as a percentage of total population. So, so in the state of Georgia and, and sitting on the Georgia R3 Initiative Steering Committee, I can tell you that we have as many licensed hunters in the state of Georgia as we possibly ever have. But we would be remiss to celebrate that because as a percentage of the population of Georgia, we're, we're continuing to decline. And so it's not solely based on how many hunters you have, but it's, it's that, you know, we're four and a half percent of the American population. And we've got to understand that, you know, there, 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 there are consequences to becoming a minority of the population, you know, a vast minority of the total right. population. Right. We're fortunate that we've never recorded public approval of hunting higher than it ever has. That, you know, we're, we're currently recording it higher than we ever have before. 82% of Americans approve of hunting deer and turkey for food. Bears and elk don't hold, you know, you know, I think bears and the teddy bear messed us up there. We know like New Jersey bear hunting is very controversial. They're not attacking deer hunting yet. And I, you know, I, I, I hope never, but um, people do hold different species in, in different compartments of their brain, but the deer that are in our neighborhoods, the turkeys that are in our neighborhoods, you know, their value to the public must be a little diminished where they're like, oh, yeah, I don't mind. It. Yeah, I, I totally approve of y'all taking a few of those for food. Um, but it doesn't hold true throughout all species. But right. public approval hunting has never been higher. And um, and so that should be celebrated. And I think hunters have become an inclusive community where we think what we do is controversial. And yet the, the 10% of Americans that really, really don't like hunting are vocal. And, but we need to be vocal about hunting. We need to talk about hunting in, an, in a responsible light. But we need to talk about what we do and advocate for, for hunting. Um, hunting is also 90% male and 97% Caucasian. Uh, Pat Durkin wrote an article for Mediator, and it got a lot of interesting comments, which – that's fine. Sometimes, sometimes getting something a little edgy gets a lot of views, but you know, we have to be concerned 
that, you know, not only are we a vast minority of the population, we're segmented in one demographic, uh, you know, and that's not, that's not sustainable either. So, you know, the goals of R3 and the goal and ultimately the goal of field to fork are the exact same thing. It's to increase hunting participation and to increase societal acceptance of, of hunting. The other thing we're trying to do is to diversify hunting and, and remain relevant in an ever-changing society. And, you know, we can talk about some of the reasons why people don't hunt today. You know, people aren't growing up in rural areas. More people live in urban areas than ever before. Their parents didn't hunt. Um, you know, my parents didn't hunt. When my dad was a kid, there were no turkeys. They would drive to the Blue Ridge Parkway in Western North Carolina in hopes of seeing a deer, you know, at dusk, you know, in the remote areas of the North Carolina mountains. But there weren't deer. There weren't turkeys. So, you had, you know, they hunted quail and rabbit. Yeah. Um, so you lost entire generations of hunters because the game was not there. And, you know, I think a lot of us take it for granted, but we're super fortunate. I mean, there's there's no other country in this world that has the wildlife and the opportunity to pursue that wildlife and fill your freezer that we do. But, um, you know, people aren't growing up in a hunting culture. They're growing up in areas that weren't, you know, conducive to hunting per se. But again, you know, don't overlook the urban areas. I'm a huge proponent of, you know, urban archery deer hunting. I think that's a huge opportunity to recruit a new hunting base that's still local to where they live. But, but, uh, you know, just there, the, there, just the factors, you know, the, the demographics are stacked against us just because of the changing world. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, there are tons of people out there that want to learn to hunt. Um, you know, they're, they want to, you know, this, this organic movement, this farmer's market movement, you know, sustainable food, the earth fairs and whole foods and knowing where your food comes from, you know, meat eater. I mean, all these things, are, are huge indicators that there's a soft spot and society is growing more in line with, with these, these reasons why a lot of us hunt. And that's been kind of the, the cool part of field to fork is I can sit at a booth uh, at a farmer's market and, and, and really not be attacked. A lot of people think, Oh, I, I bet y'all receive a lot of flack for that. Uh, four people have said something negative or derogatory in, in as many years. Um, and those are people that aren't willing to really look at the facts, but the same reasons why I hunt and the same reasons why somebody might choose to be vegan or vegetarian are, are fairly similar. And we have a lot of shared, um, values when it comes to animal welfare concerns and, and lessening our impact on this planet. And so we really do have this amazing opportunity to offer to these these people who want to to eat more locally sustainable, um, you know, be be self-sufficient in their food source or self-reliant um, and, and to have that connection with their food. So, um, you know, it, it was just writing on the wall for us. The, the data suggests that these people were inclined to hunt and just just don't have the opportunity to do so. And that's absolutely what we're finding. Gotcha. So let me ask you ask you this, and this might just be not necessarily uh, facts fact driven response, but maybe a, a personal uh, preference response, a personal opinion response. 
So we have this baby boomer, um, this baby boomer crowd that is getting ready to drop off. And um, I would feel and I would assume, right, that the best chance of retaining or introducing new hunters or, or you know, the R3 initiative, getting people people who maybe have uh, experience in hunting back to hunting again would be through the grandchildren, the children or grandchildren of the baby boomer generation, right? So I I know that diversifying is awesome and getting people who maybe are not exposed to hunting, get them exposed to hunting. Um, But I feel like that, that demographic is just sitting there on a tee waiting to be, that ball's just basically waiting to be hit because I feel like if, if my grandpa was a big hunter and I didn't hunt and I, I said, maybe I want to get into hunting. I go to my grandpa and my grandpa already has access. He's, he's over 70 now, but he knows farmers and he knows landowners and he's, he's had the access. So it would be easier for me to um, pick up hunting because not only do I have a mentor in an older generation, but I now have access through that. It, are you guys seeing anything like that, uh, like data like that or trend trends like that where certain demographics are easier to uh, get back into hunting or uh, recruit because of, uh, I guess, a previous generation through bloodline, I guess, or family that has already been hunters? You know, that's a good question. Um, I, I definitely would agree with you that, you know, any of these, you know, people who want to learn to hunt, all you know, they're always, you know, whether they're looking for a mentor, they're looking for access, you know, it's, it's lean on those, you know, um, you know, whether they be family, friends, colleagues, and the families and friends of, of other people, you know, but anytime you have a personal connection, to someone you're better off getting that access or invite or you know that helping hand and and yes uh you know if people you know were we'll call it a lapsed family i don't know you know we we you know a, a lapsed hunter would be one we're trying to reactivate but um you know they they would always be best served to go find that close relative or whatever who hunted and and the, obviously the the odds will be stacked in their favor. You know, the, the third R is reactivate. And, you know, we're seeing that within our mentors. You know, one of our mentors who's, who's allowed access to his property, who's mentored many hunters over the years, he's a baby boomer. Um, his kids uh, didn't really take to hunting. Um, and he continued to hunt he always talks about he learned to hunt watching you know bad videos in the 80s and and he you know wishes he had a better resource in those days than trial and error and and uh vhs tapes but um you know the first time he you know we try to get our mentors to come and sit through a lot of the program if they're available because they need to see you know they need to be a part of it but it's it's inspiring it's empowering to to see it start to finish but you know as i talked about we asked them to all go around and tell their story and it got to david and uh he said 
and he he leased property. He has some property he leases to a hunt club. He said, he said, man, y'all are a lot more interesting than the people who lease my property. You know, I should offer a lease for you. And and he's actually going to do that next year. We're putting together a local hunt club for Field to Fork Hunters. Uh, we're still working through some of the particulars on it. Um, but he has been reactivated. He told us, uh, you know, a while back that um, he had the best deer season of his life having these new hunters, you know, come to his property and hunt with him. And he, it wasn't his most successful deer season of putting meat in his freezer, but he said it was his most rewarding and best deer season he could remember. And, um, and he continues to talk about how this program reactivated him as a hunter where he's hunting more days and with more enthusiasm because of the community and the connections he's built with these, these new hunters. Right. Okay. Well, that's, uh, I'm, I'm really ex- excited, uh, for where this, this, all this thing is going. Cause you know, you can look at it and you can say, oh man, there's going to be a huge drop off, um, in the number of hunters. Um, but it sounds like that's, that's, yes, that's the case, but also that's by percentage only, right? So the percentage of the, as the total population, um, is growing, of the United States that the hunter hunting may, may not be necessarily declining, but just either staying the same or even an uptick. But the, the, the gap, uh, the, the total population is growing faster than the, uh, than the growth of hunting or, or are we, are, or are we seeing a, a, just a straight drop in, numbers unfortunately we're we're seeing a a straight drop i'm afraid yeah um and i don't i really don't see anything on the horizon that makes me think that we're not going to continue this drop um you know field to fork is an awesome program it but any of these programs are not going to move the needle you know if we had Every hunter in this country mentor a new hunter this year. We could double overnight. It's a lot easier said than done. I get that. You know, you got to look at what the average hunter does and how many days they spend the field. For me to ask hunters in Georgia to give some of their time when we had gun season came in here uh, around the 15th or whatever it was. I was out. I was in Pennsylvania. So. Um, but you know, our rifle season's in and it goes through January 13th or 15th or whatever, uh, whatever those Saturdays are. Uh, and I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know the exact dates, but you know, and then you go to, uh, Pennsylvania where they have a nine day gun season and, you know, asking those, those hunters to mentor is a, is a lot bigger ask, but we have to understand that the quality and the quantity of hunting in our state is determined by the number of licensed hunters we have. Hunters pay excise taxes on guns, ammunition, and equipment. Goes to the federal government, given to the state agency, based on the landmass of the state and the number of hunting licenses they sell. State agencies are almost totally funded by hunting and fishing licenses, and they have to have money to match those federal funds 
to a certain extent. So um, we are we, the the future is not pretty, and we need every hunter to understand that it is really their duty to recruit a new hunter. And, and not only that, don't think of it as a job because it's going to be the most rewarding and the most fun hunts you're going to have this year, especially um, these adult hunters. For far too long, we've been doing youth programs and, you know, veterans hunts. And while I, I, I have full respect for veterans and I love kids, we know that, A, a lot of the times we are taking kids of current hunters we were taking, you know, veterans who were already hunters. We need to be focused on creating new licensed buyers, and that's what we've been trying to do with Field Deport. Yeah. The other bad cloud I see on the horizon is I don't know how accurate this license data is because I think hunters are becoming more avid. I know that you travel a lot to hunt. Um, a lot of our friends travel a lot to hunt. I don't think that happened in 1980. I don't think, you know, it, it would be interesting to do a survey of these really, you know, older hunters, but I would imagine that if my grandfather hunted, which he didn't, but if he hunted in North Carolina in the eighties, I think he would just shake his head at the idea of somebody driving out West to go hunting. You know, I think it was a local sport it was a tradition. It was a pastime. You know, there were often certain days they hunted, like Thanksgiving or something. But I don't think you had this adventure and traveling hunter. And I guarantee you, you're, you're not very different. But I had hunting privileges in North Carolina, Georgia, Mississippi, Kentucky. Um, you know, and that's probably not all of them. But I had a hunting license in five states last year. And the best I can figure is I'm five hunters in this data. Oh, yeah, I see that. I see that. You know, because states are reporting the number of hunting licenses they can tell. And I've, I've asked people, and, and the people that I've asked are telling me that they think that's the case, is I am five hunters. So what is our real number? Or do we have eight million hunters? You know, and that's something that we have to be honest with. But I do believe that avid hunters have become more avid. I think we travel more to hunt. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that may be working against us. Right. Um, right. Not that that's not good. It's putting a lot of money into local economies. It's, it's putting conservation dollars into, you know, multiple states. But um, I'm afraid that I was counted as five hunters last year. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I don't want to end on doom and gloom. But I, I do want to end on somewhat of a positive note uh, or maybe a, a silver lining. What, what can we do as an average hunter, right? A guy who maybe hunts maybe even maybe a little bit more than avid where a guy takes off uh, a week during the rut or he takes off, uh, you know, he takes off a week for the gun season and uh, maybe he hunts during the weekends or whatever. What can we do to to help retention, something, whether it's simple or maybe taking part in a program, uh, what can we do to help? You know, I really think the biggest thing we can do as hunters is, is be, you know, responsible, ethical hunters to share our stories and venison. Ranella 
you know, I, I always say, I think he coined it, venison diplomacy. But obviously, you know, as I spoke, we need every hunter to, to take a new hunter under their wing. But mentorship comes in a multitude of levels. And the quickest way to creating an advocate for hunting or somebody who understands and and values what we do, they might not become a participant, but share meals, share your wild game. Um, you know, we cook wild game for the staff at QDMA. Um, you know, you know, share some wild game with your friends, invite people over, explain to them what they're doing. And, and you'll be surprised how many are going to be interested in going, uh, in the future. But, um, you know, we've just got to be advocates for the sport, um, or the pursuit. So, you know, share your story, share your venison, be that, be that helping hand. If, if you, you know, talking about hunting enough to where people who are interested might ask you uh, to take them hunting. And if you can't, I mean, suggest resources or opportunities. Um, we're, I'm trying to really build the online resources, you know, that module, the 20 videos we were just releasing, just uploaded yesterday on Deer Hunting 101. We're trying to give resources to those hunters that we can't host in an organized program. We're trying to give those resources to the mentor, but, you know, just be that helping hand and, um, and you'll be better because of it, uh, honestly, but it goes even further. You know, we've hosted field to forks for industry. Just as I spoke, we hosted one for Traeger employees, uh, two weeks ago, we had to cap a field to fork at 24 from Ruger and Sig Sauer, both American firearm manufacturers. Um, and that came from an email from an engineer at Ruger who responded to our first post ever on Field to Fork asking if there was something near where she lived. And she shot um, small bore rifle for MIT, was a national champion shooter, always wanted to get into hunting but didn't know how. And you know, mentioned that there were 15 employees she thought at Ruger who would love to learn to deer hunt. So we partnered up with Six Hour, and we had to cap it at 24, unfortunately, because of hunter ed requirements. We've done them for our staff at QMA, so we're no different. I'm not, I'm not disparaging any group because we were the same. But my colleagues who didn't hunt, when they saw what we were doing for Field to Fork, were like, hey, I'd be interested in that too. So we hosted one for our employees. So, I mean, there's all these opportunities out there to – to be an advocate for hunting, to share your story, share your venison, to be a helping hand for somebody who wants to learn. And, um, you know, unfortunately, maybe adults today don't like to ask other adults for help. But if we help break down those barriers or offer a bit of assistance, I think we can uh, help to to recruit a new diverse group of hunters. And, and that's really what we need to do. Awesome. Awesome. Well, man, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to hop on and uh, drop some knowledge bombs on us. Uh, thank you very much for what you do, and uh, thanks for all the work that you do You know, with Field of Fork and QDMA. Thanks to the QDMA and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, uh, if, if anybody has any uh, information or wants to help in any, fo- any shape or way, uh, where should we send them? to become volunteers or say, Hey, I want to host a field to fork or something like that. So come to QMA.com. If you find the QMA.com slash FTF, that's our field to fork page. That's a shortened URL. But, um, my email is at the end of the first paragraph. 
So you can email me if you'd like to get involved, whether you'd like to replicate a field to fork, mentor a new hunter, or participate in a field to fork. We've also got great resources on there, as I mentioned, an ebook. There's a Deer Hunting 101 tab that now has the um, first in the series of 20 videos. It's um, you know embedded in the top of the page. Um, but check us out. Um, QDMA.com, there's a ton of good resources on there as well as my contact information and almost all the information on Field to Fork. And, uh, and we're continuing to standardize the education, which we already have some, but we're, we're giving it a facelift. And, um, and soon all this will also live on the Archery Trade Association's Mentor Guide resource page, which we've partnered on. Um, but anyway, you can find my contact again on the QMA face, or Field to Fork page, and I'd be happy to help in any way I can. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. A lot of good information there, something to think about. Uh, if you know of someone who is interested in hunting but doesn't maybe have the access, doesn't maybe have the knowledge, that might be an opportunity for you to become a mentor. That's something that I really want to um, hop into maybe during the off season and maybe even in the upcoming years. Um, uh, it's I feel like it's almost my responsibility uh, if I want to see our traditions continue and pass these down to not only my children, but uh, pass them on to other people as well. Because, um, you know, we need as many people as we can get. Other than that, a huge shout out to Hank for hopping on and spending some time uh, talking with us today. Huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast. Vortex Optics, Prime, Ozonics, Wasp, Ripcord, and Lone Wolf. Please go out and support the companies that support this podcast. Because without their support, this isn't happening. So it's a, it's a pretty cool circle there. Other than that, make sure you're following the Nine Finger Chronicles on Instagram and Facebook. Make sure you are following the Sportsman's Nation on Instagram and Facebook. Other than that, it's the, that time of year, guys. Uh, it's pre-rut right now, and we're just probably days away from the rut, and uh, you know, from from big deer starting to get on their feet. Hopefully, everybody is being safe. Get out, enjoy this great time of year, and if you're going to be in a tree, please wear your damn safety harness. Have a good rest of the week.